The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. better get healthy and help animals welcome to main street vegan with your host victoria moran It was a long time Yes, it was a dream The kind you find inside your world Nestled in between The fear and hesitation Suspicion and distrust Growing out of boyhood Awakening to lust It's so hard to find my way home again I don't want to find my way home again love it is decisive love it is no cure Yours it was addressing A cloudburst good and pure Sometimes I am not so kind Sometimes I'm a bore 
not one for open At least not anymore It's so hard to find my way Home again That was Home Again, one of the musical stylings of Michael Heron, our first guest on today's program. I'm your host, Victoria Moran. You can find me at Main Street Vegan on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and at MainStreetVegan.net where we have all sorts of really cool things going on. And there's also a new Facebook group just for you, Main Street Vegan Podcast listeners. So do join us there for the behind the scenes scoop and a way to let me know what you like best on the program. It would be lovely to get to know you better. Now, after the break, we'll be bringing on Dr. B. That's Will Bolsowitz, MD, a specialist in gut health and the microbiome. And it is now my pleasure to introduce the person you've already heard sing, and that is Brooklyn-based composer and performer Michael Heron. Michael is artist-in-residence at Tamerlane Farm Animal Sanctuary, where he created the solo multi-theater piece, The Animal Show, which premiered in New York City in 2016 and continues to be performed at venues throughout the U.S. In June 2018, Michael released The Animal Album and The Animal Book, which contains stories, music, and photographs from the show. Welcome, Michael Heron. Hi, thanks so much for having me on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's And I've been on your show because you also have a, a podcast, Mikey Pod. You yes. can tell us a little bit more about that later. Lots of fun. And you've created quite a reputation for yourself, both as a performer and as an animal activist. And then you put the two together in a really unique way, an artist residency at an animal sanctuary. Where did that come from? Um, you know, I was trying to... I. I I wrote a show, I guess, four or five years ago called Tentative Armor um, that didn't have anything to do with animals, um, although I was vegan. And I finished it, and, I, and um, I kind of felt that project was done, and I wasn't really sure what to do next, but I wanted to do something about animals, and I couldn't get started. Everything felt, I was talking to a friend earlier about this, actually, that it, everything I did felt really corny, like kind of forced. Um, and then I had the idea to try to create experience to then write about and that's how I got the idea to be a resident artist at an animal sanctuary <laughs> so I said I proposed it to Tamerlane Farm and um, they said okay and we then then I figured out what that actually was <laughs> and, and what actually is it <laughs> so I visited the farm uh, at least once a month and I would take two to three day visits and when I could I would visit for a week and I just worked on the farm and I worked with the animals and had the experience of meeting these animals who I had only ever, you know, when before I was vegan, I used to eat them. And, and then I became vegan and started fighting for them, but I had never really met them. 
So I had this experience of meeting and learning about these personalities that I still, I never really understood that they were individuals until I really spent that hands-on time with them. So I wrote a show with music and stories and video um, all about that experience and my activism that year too. Oh, that's so exciting. I love it when we can bring the arts into activism. And I like it too that you decided to spend time with these beings. When my husband had the idea for the feature film, Miss Liberty, that still is in the hope uh, realm, <laughs> hasn't been made yet, uh, but he'd, he'd not been around cows. And it's about a fictional cow who escapes from a slaughterhouse. So he went up to the Finger Lakes district so that he could hang out at Farm Sanctuary with Gene Bauer and the cows. And it just made such a difference, like you say, to actually know them as individuals. Yeah. And telling their stories, um, it has a really interesting effect because it, it, I, I was able to tell this, my story of being with these animals, just the people I knew every day who weren't necessarily vegan. And I realized that by talking about these animals who have been rescued from, from animal agriculture, that then I was advocating for veganism in a sort of indirect, but very direct way. So I wasn't telling people they should go vegan immediately. I was telling them about these animals that had been rescued from people like them <laughs> who, who ate them. It was yeah. a really interesting twist. That is a very interesting twist. And, and I think some people it's going to awaken. Some people it'll take a little bit longer. So tell us, Michael, about the song that we heard. Because when I heard it the first time, I thought, well, wait a minute, that's not about animals. I know in the video on, on YouTube, there is a little dog in the cartoon there, but I didn't get the connection, but there is one. So tell us about that. Yeah, so in the show, um, that song follows a story about my dog, Corky, who was our family dog when I was a um, middle school, I guess right before middle school. And she was a stray that followed me home one day from school. And she became my best friend. Like when I was, you know, I was going into middle school and starting to realize that I was different from other kids. I was sort of slowly but surely realizing that I was gay and and sort of an outsider. I was this piano playing kid um, who didn't really fit in, but I had this dog who I hung out with every single day. So it was, I, I put the story, her story in the show, sort of to show why, I, in a lot of ways, she was my first animal relationship. And I feel like she sort of set me up to be uh, a vegan in a way. You know, it was many years after that that I went vegan, but she she was the first individual I really knew and connected with. So um, this the song is like a tribute to her and her friendship. Ah, that's so beautiful. I, I have heard dogs and cats as well being called the, the gateway species, that yeah. you, you have a connection with them and then you start to see, oh, wait a minute, this dog could be a pig. And yeah, yeah everything <clears throat> changes. So it really does. So tell us about the show for people who haven't seen it. I mean, I know I couldn't see it when it was here in New York because I was off speaking somewhere trying to make vegans in my way, but I was so disappointed that I didn't get to see that. So how has it affected people and particularly your non-vegan audience? So I'm glad you asked. I had like some great, <laughs> really good moments. When in, in New York, I would say that most of the audience in New York was um, vegan. Um, 
but when I took it on tour, my first stop was in Houston, which was where I lived before I lived in New York. So most of my friends and the people that knew me that came to this show knew me before I was vegan and before I did my own like solo work. Um, they knew me just from being a theater artist or I was like a music director in Houston a lot. And then just friends from the years I lived there. So it was a little bit nerve wracking because I was like, what is this show going to be like for a non-vegan audience? Which is, was my goal anyway. Like I really want this to not be like seen as a vegan show. Um, and th I had some great, my favorite response was there was a guy, a friend of mine made a comment on my Facebook page saying, I'm not eating, like not eating chickens anymore. <laughs> and it was because of a story that I tell about um, a chicken named Sid, who was like the a, a rooster, who was the sort of like too tough to be with just any chickens, but not really tough enough to be in the big rooster yard. So he was right on this cusp and I watched him sort of not really have a home and sort of get bullied in different spots. And, and I told the story of watching that and sort of equating to my own feelings of being bullied when I was a kid. And something about that really resonated with this friend of mine and he stopped eating chickens. And, and that was a story that I didn't really think would have that effect. But um, it's really interesting the way those things, like just telling my own story and my own perception has kind of a, helps other people shift to realize their own thing. Yeah, I think there's something about getting to know any being. I was at a dinner some years ago at the Museum of Modern Art here in New York City, and I don't know if they still have this, but back then they had foie gras, arguably oh. the cruelest food in existence. Three different times on the menu, two appetizers and an entree, couldn't believe it. So this woman was sitting next to me, medical doctor, very intelligent woman, and she leaned over and she said, I don't eat chickens because I knew chickens growing up and chickens are really smart and nobody should eat them. And I'm thinking, well, thank God here in this group where I'm sure I'm the only vegan, there's at least somebody who doesn't eat chickens. And then heaven forbid, she ordered foie gras. So it's just like, okay, education, we need to get the education out there. But how transformative it is to get to know somebody of some species that isn't ours. And this is why sanctuaries are so amazing. Yes. Yeah. And it was amazing for me to meet those animals too, as uh, already vegan, because I, I started to know who I was fighting for and it really amped up my activism to, you know, realize, you know, to me, it was, it was a concept of nonviolence to go vegan for me, I think. Um, but then extending that concept to actual individuals that I knew and I would never want to see the horrible things happen to them that happen in factory farms. Yeah. It, it really changed me. Oh, that's so cool. So what inspired you to turn the show into a book and an album? Um, I have a great friend who is a book designer and he, he had the idea to do this with my first show, the Ten of Armor that I mentioned before. Um, so it felt really natural to do it like this. And it also is a really exciting way because I'm not a big enough artist to take the show to a lot of places um, to be able to sort of have the message reach further. And, you know, it's it's kind of also like an archive feeling thing for me because there are photographs from being on tour and um, different photos from the show and and uh, music that I did in the show is on the album. So it's a really kind of cool way to put the whole thing in a different type of format that is potentially digestible in a different way, I guess. And where where can we get that? 
Um, you can get it on my website at michaelherron.com. There's a little, uh, there's a link to the shop there. But um, the book is also available um, everywhere, like Amazon and I don't know. I don't even know all the places. Barnes and Noble, I think. I, you can find it in any place you like to shop. It's kind of best for me if people get it from my website. Yeah. But, but if you're going to get it somewhere else, that's great, too. Okay. And the album, the album is streaming everywhere in Spotify yeah. and Apple Music and all that stuff. So cool. So that's the animal book. And we will put that in the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. <clears throat> So you have something incredibly cool coming up in the spring. Tell us about that. Yes. So I met, I'm guessing you probably know Kim Stallwood. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah. um, I met him at a event in October and he mentioned to me that he had worked with an organization called Animal Aid um, Unlimited in India and about uh, rescuing street animals. And, um, I sort of filed it away because I was getting ready to do the show in New York again. And um, so anyway, I guess I just gave away the thing that I'm going to do. So now, <laughs> so I finally, like, uh, once I wrapped up things with the book and the album, I followed through and reached out to Animals Aid. So I'm going to go spend a month in India working with them. Wow. And um, as, as the goal is to have a new experience to write a brand new show about. Um, so I'll be You'll bringing have my... one. Yeah, I, I can't even... One of the things that's really funny about talking to Kim about it, like we got on a video call and he was like, have you been out of the country before? And I was like, yeah, in in high school. And he said, have you been to India before? I was like, no, never. And he's like, "Okay, it's going to be be ready. It's going to be the biggest culture shock of your life. Um, So I feel like it's going to be a it's going to be a big deal and I'm super excited and terrified and all of those things. You've you've been to India, yeah? I have a couple of times and and that was my experience. <laughs> a, a great deal of culture shock. Now, I was there in the 90s and it might not be as much a culture shock now because I know India has changed a great deal, but still just the number of people. You know, I mean, I'm in New York City. It, it's like I know about people and crowds and things. But I didn't know about that kind of population density. And I also didn't know about animals on the street. I mean, I knew about stray dogs, stray cats. I didn't know about uh, cows and water buffalo and just all kinds of large, thin animals wandering around. Um, Yeah, you're going to have a heck of a show. <laughs> uh, I, I feel like it partly, I mean, I'm super excited about doing this. And one of the things that like I mentioned before about the animal show, feeling like a vegan show in a way, I, I feel like something like approaching this topic and having this whole entirely different experience adds a whole new layer that separates, that, that it'll give me so much more to write about and to share about that isn't just food animals, if that makes sense, but I can still bring the vegan message into that. So I'm really excited to see. And then there's a whole spiritual aspect that I can explore while I'm there too. And the music, I'm really excited about what what this can turn into. Oh boy, I am too. Now, I have not been to Animal Aid in India, but the filmmaker for A Prayer for Compassion, the beautiful documentary that's going to debut in October um, at the Vegan World 2026 uh, conference in Tempe, Arizona, and then start playing all over everywhere, um, Thomas Jackson did go there and has 
a lot of footage, some of which is in the film and obviously a lot of it that isn't. But the dedication of these people is so beautiful. And it's such an interesting paradox because India is the land of ahimsa. This is where harmlessness and reverence for life was really birthed. And so much of, of what goes on, you know, as I see it, well, one thing is, is the dairy industry. You know, this is a place where a lot of people are vegetarian. Uh. And, and yet... What do you do with a cow that doesn't give milk any longer? It, it's it's complex and fascinating, and I just hope you have the time of your life and and create a really moving and world changing show. Uh, I'm def I'll definitely keep you posted. <laughs> as absolutely, it yeah. Oh, that that's going to be absolutely amazing. So something else that we have talked about, Michael, is I I don't make a um, secret of the fact that I am a person in recovery. In my case, my primary addiction is food. And, and I've been in recovery from that for 35 years. And that was actually what enabled me to be vegan, was getting my act together on the inside so that I really did have the power of choice about what I ate. And I, I'm just a, a devotee of, of of 12 steps in the recovery process and what they've done for people and what they do for the world. And you have an idea that recovery and veganism and animals are connected. How's that? Um, yeah, I, I love, I love talking about this topic, but I always worry like, Oh my God, am I going to be able to communicate this? Cause it's a spiritual sort of feeling for me, which is sometimes hard to put into words. But, um, I, for me, I, I'm also in recovery, uh, for people who are listening, I know you already know that, um, from alcohol and drugs. And one of the things, I didn't have any sort of spiritual awareness or belief system when I got sober, and there's such a large component of that in recovery, the way I experienced it. And I spent a lot of time like trying to discover what would be my spiritual path. And... Um, and there came a point where I realized that a lot, like most spiritual paths and teachings were saying mostly the same thing, it's to be kind and that, that we're all connected, you know? And um, so, I mean, that came out of my sobriety. And because of that, I started thinking about nonviolence and, and uh, doing unto others and it, that wouldn't fit. Like there came a point in my life where that wouldn't fit with the whole idea of using animals for food. Um, so to me in that, like, it seems like intrinsically connected to, to move on from sobriety to spirituality to veganism. And it's really interesting that you're also in recovery and spiritual and vegan. Um, I think it's a, a cool combination. Well, it's, it's a wonderful combination because to me, my understanding of the spiritual life and the spiritual path is that it just keeps opening and unfolding if you allow for that and and then more you know uh, peace pilgrim that i actually quoted last week she used to say live up to the highest light you have and more light will be given to you and it's like why not why not be open to this next thing and and bringing it into our food choices and our life choices as well yeah yeah will you say that quote again from peace pilgrim yes yeah. She said, 
if you live up to the highest light that you have, more light will be given to you. Mm. And, and that to me just says a lot that if, if I don't quite know what I'm supposed to do next, I have to look at what I just did. Was I living up to my highest light? Probably not, or I'd know what comes next. Oh, well, like I, I was getting it, but that turns it on, <laughs> pardon the pun, <laughs> turns on the light yeah. um, a little bit more. Yeah, so, go ahead. No, that was, go, it, it, I, I'm having a moment, so you, you, you talk. <laughs> okay, well, I, I did, in our last few minutes here, want to talk about Mikey Pod, your podcast that people can find at MikeyPod.com and on all of the places where people uh, hear podcasts. So how long have you had it? And what's, what's the point? What, what's your, what sets Mikey Pod apart? So um, I've been doing it for a really long time. Like uh, it's in its 13th year. Good I started, yeah. Um, and I, it hasn't been perfectly consistent for all that time, but for most of the time it has. Um, and it's been a lot of different things, but for the past year or so, I've been specifically interviewing um, artist activists, so people who like do some type of create creative thing that they also use to change the world. So um, it could be anyone. It tends to be a lot of vegans, which isn't what I'm setting out to do, but it's sort of what my world is. Um, so I've had like the vegan zombie was my last guest. We talked about a film that he has coming up. Yes. Um, I've had like um, a a guy named Emmett who uh, has a a series that's the first series to be about and starring transgender men, um, all kinds of different people. Um, so it's really interesting. We wind up talking about the creative process and the activist process and sort of combining those two things. Oh, wow. Well, I need to introduce you to Camille DeAngelis, who's actually going to be a guest on this show next week. She's a novelist, but now she's doing a nonfiction book about creativity and veganism, and she's seeking out artists who are vegan. So, um, wow, that sounds like a match made in heaven. Yeah, I would <laughs> love to meet her. Yeah, that, that would be a wonderful thing. I think sometimes, you know, those of us who are women, we tend to find more creative vegan women. And so we need to be reaching out and finding more creative vegan men and getting more vegan men anyway. Yes. More men, come over, yeah. be vegan. <laughs> Michael, bless your heart, bless your work, bless your trip to India. Thank you so, so very much. Everybody, you can find Michael at Michael Heron, H-A-R-R-E-N.com. Um, and he's on Facebook at Michael Heron Music. And we will put all of the ways to reach him on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. And everybody, stay with us, please, because we are going to be talking about your gut, making it happy. Stay with us. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. If you've been inspired by the programming on Unity Online Radio, 
We hope you will give your support so others may be inspired too. This online radio network depends on the support of listeners like you to continue operating and expand its outreach. Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate today. Here's a Unity Meditation Minute with Paulette Pipe. So as always, we begin our time of meditation by first taking account of what we're feeling, those sights that we're seeing, those sensations that we're experiencing, and each breath that we breathe. Notice where in your body you're experiencing those sensations. Let your breathing find its own rhythm. As we begin the process of letting go, the process of relaxation, remember why we're here. To hear more from Paulette Pipe and Touching the Stillness, visit the archives section at unityonlineradio.org. Look who's making a difference in the world. It's the New Thought Walden Award honorees. Profiled in Unity Magazine, the September-October edition, Unity has joined with its New Thought partners to honor 27 leaders serving in the areas of spirituality, healing, interfaith understanding, caring for the earth, and social activism. These are people you need to know about. Pick up Unity Magazine or go online to WaldenAwards.com. If you've been on a spiritual path for a long time, what can you read that's new and exciting? Try Unity Magazine. It's designed for the seasoned spiritual student with in-depth articles and interviews about spiritual practices and philosophies. Our columnists share their own faith journeys and cover healing, science, and psychology with even a little scripture thrown in. You'll read some classic authors and some new ones. Get a free trial issue at unitymagazine.org. Recovery from addiction can be a lonely experience. Get help and support with Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice, Reverend Dan Beckett, and Spirit of Recovery every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central. Welcome to a place where spirituality and recovery meet. Each week you'll hear stories and topics that are important to the recovery community. Tune in for some lively conversation and join in with your questions and comments. Nearly 21 million people struggle with addiction in America. Reach out and join us here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the program. I love vegan living because it covers so many aspects of life. We were just talking about animals and the arts, and sometimes we talk about fashion, and sometimes we talk about health, and that's what we're going to be talking about now. There's so much to say with my next guest, Dr. B., Dr. Will Bulsowitz, or Dr. B, as he's affectionately known, is an internationally renowned expert on gut health. 
He's an award-winning gastroenterologist with a busy practice in Charleston, South Carolina, and an advocate for plant-based gut health on Instagram at theguthealthmd and his website, theguthealthmd.com. Welcome, Dr. B. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a great um it's a great pleasure for me, honestly, to be on your show because I remember when this journey started for me years ago, listening to your podcast, this show, Main Street Vegan, with my wife when we were taking a road trip together and the gears were starting to turn and it was like, imagine this runaway train when it just starts to move the slightest bit. That's kind of where I was a couple of years ago listening to your show. And so it's really a great honor and privilege for me to be here. Oh, bless your heart for saying that. Thank you so much. Well, it's wonderful to have you on, on so many levels. And I think one of the main levels is that people have so much gut trouble, young people. I mean, when I was growing up, people didn't eat very well, but they didn't have all these problems. And now it seems like an epidemic. You get to know somebody even just a little bit well, and they'll start telling you about the IBS and the colitis and the Crohn's and the diverticulosis. And it's like, my goodness, what has happened? So tell us what's happened. Well, first of all, I just have to agree with you. And I realize that this is what I do for a living is I take care of people with these issues. But I don't remember people having such issues with food sensitivities. There clearly is an explosion of autoimmune disease. We are seeing way more celiac disease than we used to. Um, I diagnose conditions, autoimmune conditions like eosinophilic esophagitis, sometimes twice in the same day. And that, that condition didn't even exist 20 years ago. And so explosion of autoimmune disease, not to mention epidemic acid reflux, you know, the pharmaceutical company is making a bazillion dollars off of the proton pump inhibitors, Nexium, Omeprazole, um, Prilosec. So what's going on here? Well, unfortunately, we're seeing dramatic changes in the health of our microbiome, which is this community of microorganisms that lives inside of us and that frankly frankly we knew very little about as of 12 years ago and it was a laboratory breakthrough uh, in 2006 that allowed us to for the first time start to study and understand this community of bacteria and fungi or yeast potentially parasites uh, most of us, frankly, don't have them, but possible. Viruses, many, many viruses. And something called archaea, which are single cellular organisms that are different than bacteria and have been on our planet for 4 billion years, which is longer than we've had oxygen on this planet. And you will find these archaea in the most difficult places to exist on our entire planet, like, for example, inside of a rift vent at the bottom of the ocean miles deep. And yet you will also find them inside of our colon. And so it was about 12 years ago that we had this laboratory breakthrough. And here's what we've discovered, that, that we each carry approximately 100 trillion 
microorganisms that are a part of us. This is our microbiome. And so think about 100 trillion. That's a hard number to even fathom. That is literally a thousand times the number of stars that exist in the entire Milky Way. Wow. <laughs> what a way to describe it. And so they actually outnumber our cells 10 to 1. You're only 10% human. And if that doesn't sort of blow your mind, then how about the fact that 99% of your genetic code is not human code? 99% of your genetic code actually comes from your microbiome, these microorganisms. So you're only 1% genetically human. Wow. And, and you're an MD, right? Not a science fiction author? <laughs> it would make an awesome science fiction novel, but this is real. Wow. This is, this is completely real. And I have to tell you that the information is coming at us so quickly that it's very hard for most practicing doctors to keep up with it because there's about 30 papers per day that are coming out dealing with these types of topics. And I, I honestly believe that, you know, time will tell. But I really think that 15, 20 years from now, you and I will be looking back on this period of time and scientific discovery. And I really think that it's going to be a change of our understanding of, our, of who we are as humans that is just like literally one of the biggest breakthroughs in, in biology and human understanding and health in history. And, you know, probably on par with when Louis Pasteur was just starting to study bacteria in the 1850s in France. And prior to that point, people were dying from pneumonia and tuberculosis. And we did not know why. We could not define what the cause of death was. We thought up to that point, it was something called miasma, which is like a supernatural dark air. That's what we thought caused the plague in Europe, a dark air. And it was that discovery in the 1850s by Louis Pasteur that allowed us to understand that it's bacteria. Wow. And so, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, so, so what do we do now? What do we do to get a good gut instead of an unhealthy one? Well, um, I think it starts with an understanding of where this comes from, where our microbiome comes from. So for example, a child is born with a gut that is almost sterile. And by the time they're two to three years old, their gut will be fully formed. Like they are two to three years old in size, but their gut is fully formed and adult sized. And so during that period of time, there's tremendous de development of the gut. And what we see is if you break up the natural way that we were designed to interact with our environment, if you take away breastfeeding, if you take away a vaginal delivery, if you give antibiotics, which kill bacteria, you end up with the same result for all three of those things, which is increased risk of autoimmune disease, like type one diabetes, increased risk of allergic conditions like asthma, um, increased risk of obesity, and even some data to suggest increased risk of cancer. And so so I would start by answering your question by saying we need to take care of this vulnerable period of time during those first three years 
to foster healthy guts in our children because what happens during that time will have reverberations into adulthood. That being said, our diet is really the critical part. So would you say that what happens in the first three years is the number one determinant of a healthy gut? No, I would say the number one determinant of a healthy gut is actually the food that you eat. And what should we be eating? If you if you look at you know the types of bacteria in your gut that you want to foster, it I think that the science is very clear. When you consume plant-based foods, you create bacteria that are designed to process those plants to extract all of the healthy phytonutrients out of those plants. And also, fiber is not just something that goes in your mouth and comes out your bottom. People need to understand that there are many different types of fiber, and many of them are metabolically active, meaning that they actually get processed by the bacteria in our gut and turned into something called short-chain fatty acids. And these short-chain fatty acids, to me, are the missing piece in the American diet because the average person in the U.S. right now is 85 to 90% stuff that is not plants. They're not eating enough foods that contain fiber that can produce these short-chain fatty acids, which make our immune system work, which get rid of leaky gut, which prevent cancer, which lower our cholesterol, prevent type 2 diabetes. You could go down the line and I could take most of the top 10 causes of death in the United States. And if you exclude things like, you know, a car accident or you exclude lung cancer, which is caused clearly by tobacco use, what you're going to find is most of these things would be improved by consuming more fiber-based foods. And there was a study done by someone at the University of California, San Diego named Rob Knight. And basically, I don't know how Rob Knight eats, but I can tell you that this he is a pure scientist. He has no agenda. And in his study, he showed us that the number one predictor of a healthy gut was the diversity of the plants that you eat. And so basically what that made clear to us is that even if you are vegan, you need to make it a priority to ensure that you are consuming a diversity of plants, trying to bring more different fruits, vegetables, and whole grains into your diet. Well, that's an interesting point that you bring up when you said whole grains, because a lot of people are a little iffy on grains these days. I was reading a fascinating book about the history of health food. It's called Hippie Food. (laughs) And they had a whole chapter on whole wheat and how back in the 70s, but even before that, whole wheat had this almost divine status, whole wheat bread, making the bread such a healthy thing. And now two-thirds of the people that I know won't eat bread, won't eat wheat. I don't know many people who are diagnosed as celiac, but I know lots and lots and lots of people who just have some kind of sensitivity and just feel better when they're not having that. So could you please talk about grains and wheat in particular? This is such an important topic because when the rule of how the gut works is that the number one predictor of a healthy microbiome is the diversity of plants that you eat, then we can't afford to erroneously eliminate foods from our diet. 
Um, that would be a huge mistake. And we have studies that show us that when people start to eliminate foods, including whole grains from their diet, it causes damage to the microbiome. And so first thing that should be addressed is why are people choosing to eliminate these foods? And the reason for most people is that they feel that they have a food sensitivity. They feel that they're, they're not able to adequately process or digest that food. And the reason why they have a food sensitivity is generally what we find is that the food contains something called FODMAPs, which is short for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. That's a mouthful. In, <laughs> it is. In layman's terms, all that is, is fermentable sugars, fermentable sugars. And many times these fermentable sugars, which naturally exist in our food, are actually incredibly healthy for us. They include the parts that feed and nourish the bacteria that live inside of us and make those bacteria healthy. But they can also, because they're fermentable, they can also cause digestive symptoms, digestive disruption. And if you're not used to eating that way, it creates problems. So for example, if you're not used to eating beans and you include them uh, you know, in a large scale in a meal, you're probably going to notice the way that you feel after that meal because your body is not used to processing them. Whereas, for example, like I couldn't do this years ago, but I literally can take four different types of beans and throw two massive scoops of each onto my salad. And I don't notice any difference in the afternoon. I'm not walking around bloated and distended or anything along those lines. I have no abdominal discomfort. And that's just because my body has become used to it. So here's the thing. When we talk about gluten, gluten is a protein that's found in wheat, barley, and rye, and it's gotten a really bad reputation. Gluten is related to celiac disease. People that have celiac disease, their immune system attacks the intestine in response to exposure to gluten. Those people need to be gluten-free. There is no debate. There is no question. For the rest of their life, those people need to be gluten-free. But what we found in the people who go gluten-free because they develop symptoms, they feel like there's an intolerance of gluten, a sensitivity to gluten. What they found in the studies is it's not gluten. It's a different part of the wheat, barley, and rye, which is a FODMAP that I was talking about before, these fermentable sugars. In this case, that FODMAP is called fructan. The fructans that are found in wheat, barley, and rye can cause digestive symptoms, but they're also really good for the gut microbiome. And so if you eliminate those fructans completely, you're depriving your gut of what can be healthy food. And so what we see in our studies are that people who eliminate FODMAPs, eliminate wheat, barley, rye, it does cause damage to the microbiome. It is not actually reducing inflammation. If anything, it appears that it's increasing inflammation to do those things. And so I really would, what I would say to your listeners who are thinking about being gluten-free, what I would say is this, if you want to eliminate the, the gluten-containing products that are processed foods like refined grains, refined grains like white bread, 
by all means, be my guest and get rid of those processed foods. But when we eliminate whole grains, from my perspective, based upon all of the data that I've seen, we are throwing the baby out with the bathwater because we are damaging our microbiome. When we're trying to make it stronger, we're trying to feel better. And in the process, we're actually making it worse. And so I would encourage those people to continue to include whole grains in their diet. And if you really adamantly feel like you have to get gluten out of your world, you have to. Okay. But then you need to make sure that you are substituting in more whole grains of the gluten-free variety, such as sorghum and farro and quinoa and things like that. Fascinating. So what would you say if you were in a debate with one of those non-vegan medical doctors who is so anti-grain, the, the grain brain and the wheat belly and those folks? Whether we're talking about whole grains or we're talking about phytates or lectins, these um, trendy things that are great for selling books, um, what I would say is this. That's a hypothesis. That is a theory. When you have a hypothesis, the point is that you need to come forward with some sort of data that actually supports the assertion that, that you're making, the claim that you're making. And if you can't do that, then it remains just a theory. And we shouldn't give so much credence to a theory. And when it comes to those things, you know, for example, the consumption of whole grains, the consumption of beans, we are talking about the foods that are consumed by the longest lived populations on the planet. If we go around the planet and look at the blue zones, in the book by Dan Buettner about 10 years ago, a little more than 10 years ago, five blue zones around the world, including Loma Linda, California, right here in our country. These are places where people are living to be 100 years old at a rate that is off the charts. And guess what they're eating? They're eating tons of beans, tons of whole grains, tons of seeds. And so if you can't come forward with data to actually support what you're trying to say, and it's just a theory, then it's unfortunate that it is turned into a book because book it, books can sell and make profits. And there is no rigorous scientific process to choosing who gets to write a book. There is a rigorous and scientific process to who gets to write a paper. There is a peer review that occurs. And there's a reason why you don't see these theories emerging in good scientific research because they have to go through peer review. And if your peers don't think that you have adequately met the right criteria of being scientifically rigorous, they're going to tell you it can't be published. And so that's the issue. You can write a book and make something into a fad diet, but the population-based studies don't support what they're claiming. It seems to me as a layperson listening to all of this and reading all of this is that the scientific scale is tipping so, so far toward plant-based eating for so many reasons. Why hasn't it just taken off and changed the world yet? That is an interesting question and I will give you my personal opinion on that. Number one, I think that people are very comfortable with the food that they currently eat, which 
defining it, we know from study that that is the standard American diet, 10 to 15% fruits, vegetables, whole grains, 25% meat and dairy, 65% processed food. And if people like the food, even if it is causing them to slowly become sick and um, giving them medical issues, they don't want to change. And I um, routinely recommend a plant-based diet for a number of medical reasons in my clinic. And many times there is a fear among my patients that they won't know how to do it, that they won't know what that looks like. Like, what, what is that food? How am I supposed to get rid of a burger or a hot dog or a, a sandwich that I've been eating for 50 years and replace it with something that I've literally never had before and I don't know how to cook and I don't know how to shop for that. And so I do think that there's comfort in our habits. That's the way that we are as human beings. We're all that way. And um, and I of course, there are marketing campaigns and um, powers that want to make sure that the status quo is maintained. And if you create confusion, then it's really hard to get the needle to move. The status quo will ultimately rule if you create confusion. So, you know, for example, there was a study that came out recently, an epidemiologic study that was a very well-conducted study um, here in the United States showing that people that ate low-carb, not even to the extreme of being keto, but people who ate low-carb had a significantly shorter life expectancy by four years compared to people that ate moderate levels of carbs. Now, of course, people are eating moderate levels of carbs. You hope that the reason why they're eating moderate levels of carbs is because they're getting it from natural fruit and vegetable sources. And so what I find to be interesting is this study just came out and it got a lot of press. And about a week later, I saw the press pick up another study that talked about the health benefits of animal product consumption. <laughs> and without getting into the details of that particular study, there's two things. Number one, it was a seriously flawed study. Any epidemiologist or person who understands how to interpret research would look at the study and really critically tear it apart. Um, but that doesn't stop the press from being able to use it as if it's fact. And the second thing that I thought was curious, and I'll just put out there, is that the study was published a year ago. So why is it making the news right now? Why are we talking about a study that was published a year ago again? And I can only imagine that there are people who wanted to make sure that that study was put back out there by the press for conversation. Fascinating. <laughs> so we have a ways to go. Just in our last few minutes, Dr. B, some take-home tips to foster a healthy gut for all of us listening. I think that the most important thing for all your listeners goes back to our prior conversation that if you show me what you eat, I can tell you what your microbiome looks like. If you show me your microbiome, I can tell you what you're eating. And at the end of the day, our studies are showing us that the consumption of plant foods is what has a beneficial effect in our gut. And so I hope that there are some people who are listening who are not vegan because I would love for them to hear this and start moving in a direction towards a plant-based diet. I really think that that is the secret. There are some additional things that can be done. We see that there's health benefits to exercise, that it actually does cause changes in the microbiome. 
We see that there's benefits to sleeping and even things like time-restricted eating, which is a form of intermittent fasting. Um, and finally, uh, it's being con conscious of the things that can cause damage to the gut because that's just as important as anything. And that, of course, are the processed foods, the meat and the dairy, and then also certain medications. Number one would be antibiotics. Number two, potentially over-the-counter non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen and also birth control. And so these are things that people should be aware of that can have an effect on the makeup of our gut. Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> so let's all go follow Dr. B on Instagram at the gut health MD. That's going to be so, so fascinating. I want to go back and look at all your pictures and learn all your wisdom. He's also the gut health MD on Facebook and the website is the gut health MD.com. So just in our last couple of seconds, what are you having for dinner tonight? Well, I had a busy day at work, and I actually didn't really have time for lunch. So I came home, and I threw down a salad with lettuce, broccoli sprouts, and sauerkraut. And that may sound horrible, and it was delicious. That <laughs> sounds so great. Thank you so much. Thanks to both of our guests. Everybody listening, God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Michelle Phillips, a celebrity makeup artist, beauty expert, self-confidence coach, and Hay House author. My podcast, Beauty and Beyond, is the place for women navigating the challenges of the aging process. Listen in for my professional advice, as well as my expert guests, as we share valuable tips, practical tools, and empowering resources to help you not only look amazing, but also live an amazing life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and available wherever you get your podcasts.